As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Now that was a proper MotoGP race. Five bikes fighting for victory until the very end. All settled for the last lap past. Alicia Spagaro and the Prelia winners for the second time having come through from 12th on the grid. What a way for part two of the 2023 season to begin. I'm Matt Beer. This is the Race MotoGP podcast. And joining me to rave about the British Grand Prix are our regular expert, Simon Patterson and Valentin Harunchi, plus special guest, Dre Harrison from our sister website, WTF1. Now, Dre's day job may be all about F1, but his passion for MotoGP is every bit as excessive as ours. And he's joined Simon at Silverstone this weekend. They've both nicked a different commentary box for their podcast appearances. So, Dre, as you're the special guest, we'll start with you. How has your first experience of the MotoGP paddock been? Massively overwhelming <laughs> is the, is the uh, most natural phrase I can come up with. No, it's been an incredible experience. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't give the monster a few shout out because they uh, they helped invite me. And of course, um, one of our fellow colleagues, Glenn, as well, who put the suggestion up to me in the first place while I was uh, already going through one crisis at the WTF1 clubhouse, as it was. So I've done <laughs> Silverstone twice in a month. I went from zero media events being covered to two in the space of a month. I'm literally the London bus um, of motorsport podcasts at the moment. So uh, it's it's been a hell of an experience. It's amazing seeing so many faces to names that I've followed over the years. And I know a lot of people just uh, have looked at WTF1 like it's like we're just an F1 page. Like I genuinely love like other series as well, like MotoGP and um, and IndyCar as well. So it, it's it, it's uh, it's a huge honor to uh, to to grace also to grace Simon Patterson's presence after all the years <laughs> of us beefing each other on Twitter. So to actually have us here together in person, it basically feels like WrestleMania 17 all over again, um, only in punditry form. Uh, like so, I will be the Rock, and then Simon Patterson will be uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin for the next hour. It should be fun. <laughs> You lost me when you said Simon starting fights on Twitter. I don't. That's just not realistic. So yeah. No, no. I've only fallen out with the South Africans, the Portuguese, and the Turkish in the last twenty-four hours. So you know, <laughs> I've only had I've only had one death threat today. But that, that's a quiet weekend for you. Like you, you poked the bear yeah. with Dennis Onchu's fans, and you thought, oh, here we go again. <laughs> so I was going to say, it's like sometimes we are accused. 
not just the Race Motor GP podcast, but sometimes our traveling journalists are accused of being a little bit miserable about their spectacular jobs, which I, I put down to the the fact these calendars are quite insane now. And so it is, it's draining being on the road, even if you're covering a sport you love. But that was a pretty superb race. So Simon, are you, are you slightly happy by relative Simon at the end of a MotoGP weekend standards today? Yeah. I mean, th- this weekend has been really tiring because it's felt like the first week back at school after the summer holidays. And I've been like pretty drained all weekend, pretty low energy. And then we had that race and suddenly everything was better in the world because that was exactly the sort of race that, that sells MotoGP, that makes you happy to be a MotoGP fan. Um, I briefly thought for a few minutes that it was going to turn into my dreaded flag to flag, which, you know, this is why I hate the flag to flag because it would have ruined a phenomenal race today if they'd all pitted for, for wet tires and then rolled back out 30 seconds apart. But thankfully, the rain held off just enough that they were able to go properly toe-to-toe in the last lap. Uh, Alicia Spagaro delivered one of the overtakes of the season on Peko Bagnaya for the win with a hell of a lot on the line, like riding on it in wet conditions. It, it was a brave pass. It was a spectacular pass. I mean, what's not love about that sort of action today? Yeah, absolutely. Val, you had the honour of writing the incident race report for, for, for all of that. And I think you, you actually... Incident report. <laughs> you actually ty- typed a noise <laughs> a lot around, along the lines of, uh, as it finished from, from what I could tell in our, in our Slack channel. But you also... Well, it was, it was uh, because, because I raised the point earlier in the weekend that I was blown away by Alicia's margin of advantage in Friday practice and dry Friday practice the uh, 67 hundredths of a second or something like that. Which Six, I, I full thought six was, tenths, wasn't it? Which was Yeah, um, it was more than that. Um, it was almost seven, which yeah, uh, is unprecedented this season. It was, you know, practice times don't count most times, but this is, of course, this isn't practice. It's just qualifying zero. So everybody was giving it their all. And it, it was unprecedented for the season to have that kind of advantage. Obviously, he didn't get to show whether it was replicatable further into the weekend over one lap because qualifying was super wet and you, we don't really expect the Aprilia to thrive massively at that kind of rain. Like there's there's people we expect to be on pole in those sort of conditions and it's not Alation, it's not Maverick Vinales either. Uh, but I know I thought he was already at that point, my thinking, and I, I wrote a few rambling paragraphs into our Slack chat that, you know, it really makes you reevaluate a rider because I've always rated a leash but then there, there's rate and then there's the guy can outpace the MotoGP field by seven tenths in qualifying conditions which is a bit deranged really and my post checkered flag it wasn't uh it was uh-huh like as in yeah it was reasserting my rightness from earlier <laughs> in the weekend sort of you know yeah. you know i love a victory lap and it was a fantastic race by him and genuinely uh, Aleish, it's it's all about you know existing impressions right and Aleish has been a journeyman for so much of his career he's obviously uh, you, you know i rate everybody in MotoGP quite a bit and making it a MotoGP is already huge sticking around there for so long is massive especially when there's five million young riders from moto 2 graduating every year but it's, it's been hard to let go of the image of that Aleish who got pretty comprehensively beat by Maverick Vinales at Suzuki. And when, when you see him at Aprilia, you know, yes, he roundly defeats every teammate over and over and over again. But you, you, at one point you wonder how much is it just being sort of a, a flawed bike that he's been 
in charge of developing and sort of, you know, has developed it into something good, but a bit for himself. But it's not that. It's just not that. He's just really good. He's he's an, genuinely an exceptional MotoGP rider who I think is in no way flattered by his two wins. I think, if anything, he honestly probably should have more because his flashes of pace are as good as anybody's. He has a very serious, very difficult teammate who in slightly different conditions also could have potentially won today. But then, you know, just fate doesn't love Maverick Vinales right now. But the fact is, again, a lot of us, I think, expected a repeat of the Suzuki tendencies at Aprilia between Aleish and Maverick. And it's, it's not really happened. Aleish has more than held his own. And it's because he's... It's a complete other white. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say it's like, I wouldn't say it's overwhelming. I still think Maverick is much closer to Aleish than basically any other Aprilia teammate. But it's still, that's not what he came to Aprilia for. And the fact that the fact that Aleish is keeping him at armor's length and the fact that Aleish is delivering the Aprilia highlights for the most part uh, suggests to me that he's just, he's evolved a lot, but also he's tapped into that reserve that maybe he never had the chance before in his career to, to tap into. So I think this was even, for me, this was more impressive than basically all of 2020, 2022, weirdly. The, the thing that he seems to be able to show at the minute is that on a weekend where it looks like it's going right for Aprilia, he can take more out of the Aprilia than everyone else. You know, that's not necessarily maybe the case every weekend. He's not head and shoulders the best Aprilia rider every weekend. But when they start the weekend strongly as a factory, Alicia's going to be the top guy at the end of it. He's going to be the guy that capitalizes on that, the guy that, that you know, uses the strengths of the bike fully. Um, maybe he's a little bit less adaptable whenever it comes to, you know, circuits where they're not traditionally as strong. And we've seen that, you know, if you wrote down a list of the circuits where Aprilia, you expect Aprilia to be really strong, and then all the other circuits, I think that the, the list, that would pretty much correlate almost exactly with the circuits that Alicia has done really well at versus the circuits that Maverick has done really well at this year. If it's here, if it's Argentina, if it's, you know, we've still got Qatar to come, we've still got Phillip Island to come, we've had Assen, those are the tracks that Alish just absolutely dominates on that bike on. Um, he, yeah, he impressed today. Um, he, you know, it's, it's rare that I predict a race winner correctly, and I did today because I said this morning that he was going to be the guy for it, and that was because of the pace from from Friday. Because you know, on a weekend, this is the other thing that works really well for him. On a weekend where track time is perhaps more limited, that's another thing that Alicia is really good at. And you know, Saturday was cut short, or Saturday was basically non-existent because it was wet. Um, we were running based on Friday's times, and look what he did. So a few years ago, I sort of praised and dismissed uh, Aleish in one of these podcasts by saying that he was basically my emperor of the underdogs in MotoGP based on the fact he'd been amazing on this absolutely amazing on the CRT bikes his, his margin over the rest of the CRT bikes was incredible sometimes and he was annihilating everyone else in Aprilia but Suzuki against Vinales nah yeah just didn't didn't really see enough that really wowed me at any point that's so like okay here's his level put him on the rubbish bike he'll do incredible things with it i kind of at the time this must have been about two years ago i compared him to sergio perez in formula one and just i was like don't ever give this person a top drive because they're not mm. going to make good use of it or top ride in this case but put them on your rubbish bike again and again and again they'll be two seconds faster than a lot of people would be i val's made a good case today that um Aspargaro is more than that. I still wonder, partly because of your argument there, Simon, about 
the places where he's capitalizing on the Aprilia, it does sound more like it's kind of, he's still the man getting the extra level out of a bike that is not the best rather than a proper elite rider, if you see what I mean. Basically, I think my Emperor of the Underdogs tag is not entirely outdated. Dre, I'm going to let you get in here before the other two barge barge in with their regular tendencies. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think there's a lot of credence to that previous argument because it was, with Aleish, I think it was more a case of proving it. Like you said, Suzuki was... A, 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 a probably a reality check for relation. It was his first genuine, you know, top end test. Obviously, be, you know, being the best of the CRTs, the CRTs didn't have an, an amazing fleet of, of, of riders at, at that level. He um, and he walked into a Suzuki team with Maverick Vinales, who was a very highly touted prospect. Was only really beaten in Moto Two by an incredible Mark VDS side when it was Rabat and Calio, and they were able to just dominate that that environment. So. Maverick was 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 highly rated when he came into MotoGP, and Aleish got got blown out by him. So, yeah, I, I could I could completely understand that argument. Um, and so I I think what's happened here is is that when he went to Aprilia, Aprilia were nowhere near the manufacturer they are now in MotoGP, and I think Aleish just had to you know dig in and do the hard yards um, when the team wasn't really all that prominent and relevant. And I think. 2020, you know, 2021 was the big breakthrough. Literally, this this very round two years ago, where he briefly led the race alongside his brother. Um, I think that was the first real sign that Aprilia had taken a genuine big step in the right direction, got Aprilia's first podium since God, I want to say it was 2000 when when that, that came around. It was the Jeremy McWilliams era, and God bless him, he's still racing now, um, which is incredible in its own right. But that was the first real indicator at this track that Aleish had maybe taken a big step forward. He was the big benefactor of doing his development work and, you know, going back with Aprilia, trying to figure this out um, and how to take that step forward. Because I remember the bad Aprilia days. I remember when it was Marco Melandri and Stefan Bradl trying, like, and they were, they were celebrating top tens like they were race wins. Now they've had multiple wins since then. And did, did Melandri get a chance to celebrate a top 17 at any point? I don't know. Right. No, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. And he, even if he even if he finished tenth, he he wouldn't have celebrated. He was <laughs> patently did not want to be there. No, he's, he, he 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 like the the love had gone by that point. He was looking forward to his, his yeah. future in a wobbly Ducati World Superbike. But um, no, like he he has been the biggest benefactor of going in the back, tinkering, making this work, and and he's been richly rewarded for it. He's turned himself into a genuine title contender. Maybe. Level, you know, like the proven big boy winners, obviously Quattararo, Banyai, obviously Marquez's reputations preceded him uh, leading up to this point before the arm break. But th- this is no longer a huge surprise. This is, you know, uh, Malaysia is now a rider where if everything clicks in a scenario, he can win. And if you want to, if you want to make a quick Maverick comparison to um, the way he's progressed as a rider given the Suzuki environment. We've seen a similar scenario to this earlier in this very season at Portimao. Maverick Vinales was the one that was following Francesco Bagnaia for the whole race. Maverick could stay with him in terms of ultimate pace, but couldn't get close enough to force the issue and take a pass for the win. Aleish had that little bit more to be able to 
to you know, to take advantage of a rare Banyaya final lap mistake. It wasn't, wasn't a big one. It was a little bit of a wobble going into Cops, but Aleish took full advantage and punished him for it. That's the difference maker. That's what we've... We, we praise as elite level, you know, race craft and skills. So it, it also goes to show you not only the difference between Alicia and Maverick but to me, but also the difference between the Alicia of maybe two or three years ago and the Alicia we're watching now. It's a, it's a huge step forward for it. I mean, to be fair, I, I think it's entirely possible that some of those weird, fluky Espargaro sixth place finishes on the Aprilias that weren't very good and were having their engines explode every other weekend for all we know now they might have been as good as this ride because you know that was not a not a fantastic bike i do think he's i do suspect he's improved quite a bit and i also just whatever his personal progression is just a little heartwarming because like one of the first things i remembered after this win and i referenced it in the in the column after the race is so he had Alasius had his fair share of spats because he all he shoots from the hip every time, basically. And when there are other riders in the firing line, they get in the firing line. Um, there was a there was a mini spat with Danilo Petrucci, who's sort of another favored man of the podcast, back in 2020 over I don't remember what some usual thing, just something not so significant, but with the two characters who will go at one another and in some twitter discussion it was still called twitter at that point the the golden days uh, in some twitter discussion uh, petrucci retorted to espargo by just posting the career stats up and espargo's you know 250 starts across the the four classes you know 125cc 250cc moto 2 moto G. lorenzo did that too did yeah. he yeah which <laughs> yeah yeah, did Lorenzo do that to Chrysler or to Espargaro too? Chrysler Lorenzo might have done that to Cal Chrysler. To Espargaro. Did he? Yeah, okay. I remember yeah. making, I remember yeah, making a video about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah which, it, was a, it was a very easy, it was a very easy thing to do to get a few cheap laughs and I, I understand it, but Alessio was already good at that point and now there's no longer a zero in that column. There's a two in that column. Those two wins have been at the top level for a brand that has never won with anybody else. So... How about that? The other thing is, though, I think Aleish quite likes being the underdog. I actually think he gets a bit of a kick out of it. Um, I, I I think he enjoyed his title tilt last season, and he did put together a reasonably good title tilt until everything went completely upside down in Mategi, and then the rest of the year just crumbled to dust around him. But he never really felt comfortable, never sounded comfortable, sort of, sitting at the same table as Bagnaia and Quattararo and being considered, you know, one of those top guys because he likes being the 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 sort of the plucky underdog that's fighting back all the time. Um, I think it, that's a role that suits him far better in the grand scheme of things. And he plays it well, which is good for the sport as well. It's good value. Um, so, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe he doesn't want to be one of the sports elites. Maybe he doesn't want us to talk about being one of the sports elites at the very least. Just like Jack Miller uh, announced this weekend that he's taken grave offense at being called the veteran Australian recently in an article that he read. <laughs> <laughs> he's been here for a decade now. How can he not call himself a veteran? Yeah. And he's definitely Australian. Yeah, yeah, no, he's <laughs> definitely Australian. I'm married to one. I know what they're like. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm being slightly deliberately confrontational with this question then. So given how good he looked this weekend, how good Aprilia looked this weekend, 
I get that this is still the guy who was dragging a CRT around not so long ago. I get that this is a team that was an absolute laughing stock as recently as when Vignoles actually first mooted going there. Aprilia was not a, a favoured destination. I get all that. However, if they can do that this weekend with such pace, why isn't it happening more often? Surely after last season, it actually should be. Because it was cold. Low grip. I mean, that it's... It seems to me as, as as simple as that because it was cold because uh, they did other manufacturers. Aprilia is always really good out of the gate, and the fewer normal track time you have, sort of, it, it does seem like the better it is for Aprilia as long as the race itself is normal. So Aprilia like really does seem to like a fresh track, but a, obviously a dry track. Although it was. We should say it was pretty good in the sort of sketchy, weird conditions of the sprint this week. Considerably better than the last time. Yeah, which, which is a, a bit surprising because honestly, when you looked at those conditions, you would have expected both Aprilia's and particularly Maverick, who ended up on the podium, yeah. to just go to the back instantly. You, I, I thought there'd be a definite Lorenzo impression from from Maverick seeing the weather. Yeah, no, but instead it was no, that was like a very good Maverick ride, but again, not close, but no cigar uh, for Maverick. Um, the 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 cold bit about it and the, the like the, the big the most important part i think is the front tire pressures didn't go to the roof like there there was no big tire pressure issue in traffic like there is at most places right now and i think that's sort of the explanation that's been proffered by Espargaro himself too and it's an explanation that makes a ton of sense to me because m- most weekends they won't have a track as wide and overtake compliant as Silverstone and they won't have a track as cold as Silverstone and the fact that it's cold is you know it's bad for most of the weekend because it's causing people to crash but it's you know it's helped out Aprilia in this case fairly substantially and still it was it was still hard work like I think the RSGP was clearly the fastest bike there if you just sent them all out to run their pace like if it was a if it was a rally with 20 stages and each stage is just you know doing a lap of silverstone i think the aprilia wins that rally goes maybe one two maybe one two three but overtaking is still really hard even at a track that's you know really compliant for that and they they spent a lot of a lot of time in the pack you saw what happened with vinales was you know briefly ahead he was a little bit tentative in some moments he got as, as he explained he got sucked into the slipstream of uh, Alex Marquez up ahead, which ended up with him nerfing Jack Miller out at, what was it, Cops? I keep forgetting corner names. I think it was Cops, yeah. And th- so that opened a position for Aleish. Aleish did admittedly then pass Alex Marquez, but he he benefited from Marco Bezzecchi crashing out up front. And then with Peko Banyaya, what will have helped the overtake was the fact that Banyaya, firstly, is championship leader who for who 20 points is more valuable than 25 or zero, you know? Yeah. He can afford to bank and he can afford to sort of take it a little bit easy and he's probably, he won't have been the most comfortable in those late race, slightly sketchy conditions. But also it was still, it was like, it was a lot of work to set up that sort of, that overtake. It did not look simple. It took squeezing Banyaya pretty close to the track edge coming out of, coming out of Cops and coming into Magazine Beckett's. It's just, it's hard for Aprilia to to overtake. It's hard for it to run in the pack. And it's also, they don't have, like, they've improved their starts, but they don't have the magic KTM button of just to the lead instantly at turn one, which we again saw, we again saw today. 
Uh, Jack Miller didn't really have particularly good race pace. I think that's pretty clear, apart from when it started raining a little bit, he came alive, but for most of the race, he was sinking, sinking, mm-hmm. sinking, sinking, even without the Vinales moments. But he led at turn one. Let's have a lot now. Because, <laughs> yeah, because the qualifying was wet. And he had a fair few laps in general. Yeah. We've, we've known. And he had no pace. Yeah, no pace. He had no pace and he was roadblocking. Yeah. Yeah. And if anything, it shows that, uh, like, I've said it before, Alege excels in those sort of low grip scenarios. Like you said, with the Wall of Rain, it was a pretty green Silverstone track. His other win was in Argentina. A tra- um, the the Tenerife del Hondo is a track where they don't do an awful lot of motorsport year in, year out yeah. um, in general. So it's normally pretty dusty. That's a constant complaint you get every year. Um, so that's an issue as well. The, the other thing for me is, you know, the, the first thing I said was I listed off a list of tracks that the Prilla goes really well at. And they are traditionally circuits. And in the MotoGP calendar of yesteryear, you would have considered Yamaha circuits. And, and what we've seen change in MotoGP is that the V4 engine has become supreme over the inline four. But what Aprilia, we've always said that Aprilia seems to have been able to build is an in, a V4 that has a lot of the attributes of an inline four, including corner speed. So, you know, they're still taking advantage out of that at the circuits where you would traditionally expect a bike that can carry good corner speed and has uh, real good mid-corner stability to go well. Um, you know, that's always been a Ducati weakness, that that kind of mid-corner speed, going back to like Casey Stoner and Valentino Rossi days. Um, so, you know, a Aprilia, Aprilia benefit here because there's lots of big, long, fast corners. There's lots of really high-speed direction changes. Yeah. And I think, you know, we saw that in the last lap of the race because Aleix wasn't all that close to Peko at the start of the lap. And then through the fast section, really hauled it back in to set up the overtake just where he needed to do it. Um, you know, that that to me really demonstrated the strength of the Aprilia RS GP over the Ducati at the minute, showed where they were fast. Um, unfortunately for him, we're going to the Red Bull Ring next weekend, which is literally the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah, that could be relatively painful, couldn't it? There were actually three Aprilia riders had the chance of being on the podium today. So I, I, I would like... I was going to say I'll go throw this to Simon just so he can be allowed back in the Portuguese border, but I'm not. I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Dre with this one. <laughs> Miguel Oliveira had by far his best race of the year, bar those few minutes before Mark Marquez landed on him at Portimao. Where did that come from? It's it's one of those things with Miggy where it's just like he. I think when the rain comes down, he like the best of him comes out. I mean, don't get me wrong. This is not, I don't want to just type cast Miguel Oliveira as a wet weather specialist because he has won in the dry and in the wet. And when his setup is fully dialed in, he can win. He can win any given Grand Prix on paper. He's, he's I mean, you forget he had five KTM wins over his time with the factory team and the, the tech free team, but he started 16th on the grid. And he ended up fourth by the end. He, he, he didn't want to take... He, he kind of acknowledged in his debrief after the race that he he was pretty much all out of risks. He could play without just straight up crashing the bike. But he he, he openly admitted he, he was like, okay, now's the time to push when he could see the white flag come out for the, the track becoming slippery when the rain started coming down. And he was four seconds off that leading group um, when, when, when the white flag came out. And... Over the course of a handful of laps, he was consistently the fastest man on track. He was prepared to take gambles and take chances where no one else in the field was being preparing was was preparing to. Sure, there was a few on track overtakes and close running, which of course hampered them to a degree because Manyara also tried to get away in the middle of that. 
you know, you know, final third of the race. But of course, Diapriti has reeled him back in. But again, Miguel de Vera is just such a rider of confidence. It's it's hard not to admire him when he's in full flow like that. And again, low grip conditions are pretty has always gone well in that sort of scenario, slippery track and and like Miggy openly admitted he was over the limit on quite a few occasions. In, um, but that was the risk he was prepared to take to try and get back up the field. And in, on this occasion, it worked. On another occasion, he probably crashes, which, um, you know, he's openly admitted it's been a rough time for him this year. He's been battling injuries all season long. He said this was really the first race he's completed all season where he felt fully fit which amazingly probably isn't the first rider in the field to say that this year the way it's all played yeah, applies out about half of them doesn't it yeah it plays about half the, it feels like it's applied to about half the field so far this season so um a real breakthrough weekend um like i said not just for for uh, miguel Oliveira, but for a prettier in general like i said first time all Four of their bikes were in were in the top ten. Was Raúl Fernández ended up in tenth place as well on the day. So, arguably, almost certainly, a pretty as finest hour in MotoGP to date. And in in the context of that, um, and in the context of how little time Oliveira's had on track this year relative to everyone else and the injuries he's come back from and everything, like the the guy in that whole camp across two teams who has to be the most sort of disgruntled this evening is Maverick Vinales because. Oliveira beat him. And then, you know, on a weekend where the factory's looking really, really strong, the last thing you want is to be beaten by a satellite bike. And Oliveira handed it to him. Like he looked super strong. Let's let's, you know, let's be honest. On last year's bike. On last year's bike, on the, on Vinales' old machine. Um, yeah, Biggie is pushing for more Aprilia upgrades to maybe bring it up towards the 2023 standard. He admitted that, and in, in, again, in his debrief, he was saying that it's possible that Aprilia might give the 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 RNF, the the crypto data team, some more support as, as the season goes on. And no better argument than getting both your bikes in the top ten and Miguel Oliveira beating Maverick Vinales straight up on the previous year's bike. It's almost like Ducati's happened all over again. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> It was it was conditions determined. So let's pump the brakes a little bit, okay? In in, in the dry, there's an entirely an entirely real possibility that Maverick Vinales, despite nerfing himself and Jack Miller out, wins the race. That was plausible. Mm. So I, I think he would have got to Banya and then been unable to overtake him because that would be very Maverick. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, I would I would pump the brakes on that one. I would, however, also say that even before the rain came, it was a really good ride by Oliveira, and I think. We have not yet. I think a lot of people, and I'm gonna gonna sort of lord lord over some people here. Maybe I don't know. I think a lot of people have forgotten how good he was in the in the in the postseason appearance on the Aprilia. Immediately, how good he was for much of the preseason. I just I think we haven't really seen the a proper sample of potential of Miguel in in just normal weekends on that 2022 Aprilia, which was a good bike. I think he's just. He's going to be good. I, I said that on previous podcasts. I expect him to have a, a really pretty solid second half of the season as long as he can get back into the groove after all the injuries. So it's not particularly surprising. The rain helped, but even in the dry, he finishes that race, what, fifth, sixth? I mean, that's ex- excellent from 16th. And just before we finish talking about Aprilia, I have to say um, we would be remiss not to to throw a few words of praise the way of Raul Fernandez because he's had a really tough season and it's you know it's he hasn't shone this year. There's been all sorts of talk about his future, uh, and then on the day when Aprilia was performing credit to him, he upped his game 
and got himself his first ever MotoGP top 10 as well, um, just to round out the perfect day for them. So yeah, deserves a bit of credit for that, and it'll take a bit of pressure off him within the both within the RNF team and within the whole Aprilia camp, I think. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. So although it's been a decent season, we have got a bit of a habit this year of getting about 45 minutes into this podcast on a post-race evening before discussing the actual race. I think that's more a reflection of how fun the rider market's been and how crazy some developments have been. And I did think this morning that we'd be doing much the same again before the British Grand Prix main race actually happened because there was so much to talk about in terms of 2024 rider movements. Now, the first big domino fell in the week ahead of Silverstone when Yamaha announced that it was taking Alex Rins from LCR Honda to replace Franco Morbidelli. We discussed that one a lot on the last week's podcast before it was actually official. We all agreed, brilliant move. So we're not going to go into Renz and Yamaha today, but it's interesting that rather than the next topic being what happens to Morbidelli necessarily, what happens at, at Honda next, suddenly it's Ducati, the manufacturer that seems to have everything very much in place, that we're looking to for the next moves. And yeah, this was quite a surprise. And a lot of it was stuff that you uncovered in some one-on-one chats with some of the key people at Ducati and VR46 this weekend, Simon. Yeah, I mean, credit to both people that I spoke to. I spoke to Uchio Salucci at VR46 and I spoke to Paolo Chibati at Ducati. And both of them were super upfront and honest about the situation. Um, I mean, in context, it's pretty easy to see why. It's because they're trying to use... Uh, to apply a bit of pressure to Marco Bezzecchi because he's got a big decision to make. But they laid the cards out on the table as clear as you could hope for um, to the extent that the VR46 press officer made sure that they got a copy of both of the stories that we wrote about it so that they could also (laughs) see exactly what was said by Ducati management about the situation. Um, They've given Bezzecchi a very, very clear ultimatum. He can have a 2024 Ducati next season at Pramac or he can have a 2023 bike at the team that he knows and loves, VR46. He can't have both. He can't have a new bike at the old team. Um, You know, that's fair. Um, I think they tried to run five bikes, five factory bikes last year, and it didn't work, Uh, partly because, you know, they explained in great TTO, because VR46 was a relatively new team with a slightly different structure from what Ducati prefer in MotoGP, but that's improved. And they were very complimentary about the team and their ability to run five bikes, a factory bike, if they needed to. But it's not something Ducati wants to do. Um, You know, we went into last season in a position where the the factory bikes were running two different specs of engine because they couldn't afford to build 
uh, enough engines and time to, to put everyone in the same machine. And they don't want something like that again. So Bezeki has that decision to make. He admitted on Sunday evening post-race that he needs to clear his head from a difficult day at, at Silverstone on Sunday and go away home, relax, and then come back and have that conversation this week with his management about what he wants to do. Uh, while he's a VR46 Academy rider, his management is separate from the VR46 team. You know, there are two different teams within one structure. So he's it's not like he's going back to talk to Chiu about what he should do. Um, it's different people. And then from, from that decision, whatever it should be, there will also be a, a knock-on domino effect that, again, both sides are really open about. Uh, if he goes, then Franco Morbidelli gets a seat, which makes perfect sense. If he stays, then Franco Morbidelli... We think looking at the way things are falling out, we'll probably end up at Grissini Ducati because it's pretty obvious that Ducati want Morbidelli. Uh, if Bezeki does go to Pramac, he'll depose Joan Zarco and Zarco will go to LCR Honda. And again, you know, surprisingly open conversations. It's very unusual to hear a rider contracted to a factory talking about the possibility of riding for a different factory next season. But Zarco did just that and kind of hinted that going to Honda to help them make their shit bike better would be a bit of a redemption story for him because he went to KTM to do the same thing and it failed spectacularly because he wasn't a mature enough rider at the time and now he feels like he is, um, which is, you know, that's quite nice to hear actually, someone that, that's acknowledging that there's mistakes have been made in the past and that they find a way to fix them. So, yeah, um, you know, it's it's very odd that we have like three or four riders across three or four teams in a bit of a silly season maze. And we know exactly what's going on because everyone's telling us what seems to be the truth. Um, very unusual, very refreshing, lots to write about. And I would imagine we'll know in the next few weeks where all those pieces fall once Pizzecki makes his decision. Uh, Ducati's ideal scenario would be have Johan Zarco in World Superbikes, but Zarco, it's a no-go for Zarco at this stage in his career. He's not particularly interested. Um so um, a few years ago, Johan Zarco and I had a rather spectacular falling out because uh, oh, yeah, it was, because it was mistranslated that I had said he was going to superbikes. And uh, he finished his media debrief yesterday by giving this long explanation of what he would like to do across his future and, uh, you know, where all his options were with LCR and Pramac. And then he looked directly at me and just said, but I'm not going to superbikes. <laughs> <laughs> So, so we can conclusively say that, that both he hasn't forgotten and that he's not going to be a world superbike rider next year. <laughs> There's a good chance we're going to be, well, I don't, I don't think overtaken by events, but I, I imagine things will come thick and fast. And maybe feel free to correct this impression of mine, any of you, but I, I think it's pretty clear which side everything is going. I'm, I think it's pretty obvious Marco Bezzecchi will take up that Pramac ride because he's been talking about how much I he agree. wants a factory, factory bike and his, his sort of rhetoric changed coming into the weekend from I don't really want to do a sideways satellite team switch to ah, I'll ride sort of wherever to have a, a factory spec bike and it's what Ducati prefers Ducati will then have him under official Ducati contract which I'm not sure would be the case if he stayed at VR46 mm. but also just generally it feels like a point of no return has already been reached there because if he somehow decides to stay at VR46, how do you then convince Johan Zarco, who you were about to get rid of, 
just stay on a Ducati factory contract instead of going to to Honda, where I imagine now the impression will be that he's more wanted and Honda is more in need of him. Okay, the bike's much worse, but... I was going to say, you could just show him some lap times. Yeah, but it's (laughs) important for riders to to feel needed. It's really important (laughs) for riders to feel needed. Very, very important. So I think it's looking like Bateki will go to Pramac and I'm guessing he might take his VR46 crew chief with him or at least that's how Paolo Ciabatti suggested it so he'll take yeah. Matteo Flamini even though he's not a Ducati employee like all the other Ducati MotoGP crew chiefs yeah so so yeah he'll take Matteo Flamini who I keep thinking is an old Arsenal player but that's actually Matteo Flamini just looked it up yep uh, yeah <laughs> uh, and no, I think this one was Valentino Rossi's data engineer for a long time he's, he's pretty talented mm-hmm. Is he more or less talented than Mathieu Flamini? This is not a not a question I'm willing to dig into right now. It's going to be an interesting Pramac lineup, if so. Bitsecki and Martin, and it's it's an impressive level of lineup future-proofing from Ducati as much as it is possible. Although you'd imagine both of those guys are on some form of factory bike somewhere in 2025. Somewhere. And all, that somewhere can't be Ducati for all of them. We can't have 15 factory Ducatis on the grid, even though the racing would be probably quite good. Um, and yeah, Zarco just, I think Zarco would be a, a really good signing for Honda, just sort of also as a, because I've shopped him around to every destination, basically, but also because as a, not just as a man of experience, but as a litmus test of where the bike really actually is now that everybody's too hurt to ride it or do anything with it or show any sort of concrete progression. And I, just on a final note, it's it is really funny to me that uh, Johan Zarco and Alex Rins' fates are again intertwined a little bit, because as you will remember, coming into 2017 before their debuts, it was looking oh, a lot yeah. like Zarco would be the Suzuki hire, and then Suzuki ultimately thought about it, thought about it, thought about it, went for Rins. It did not look like a very good move in 2017. On the balance, since worked out all right for basically for both parties, I'd say. And once again, we get to see Marco Pazeki versus Jorge Martin, who gave us a phenomenal Moto 2 season that year. Moto 3 season that year, sorry. Yeah, two guys with, in- with incredible upside. And I think, look, let's be real here. These are Ducatis. I mean, the, the two headline teams are their factory team, obviously, and the Pramac team. Their four best riders will be on their four best bikes. There's, there's no getting around that. Uh, I think if you're Bez, you have the walking case study of Enea Bastianini's 2022, where even on the previous year's machinery, for a good while, he was at times the only person that could give Francesco Magnaia something to genuinely worry about. And I think Bez, if, if anything, has taken that role this year. He was uh, he was, he was my pick for the win this weekend. Um, strong in practice, strong in the dry, strong in the wet everywhere. Just got caught up in the slipstream of Magnaia's bike one too many times. But for me, like Bez is a very different sort of rider to Jorge Martin. Maybe not the ultimate in terms of you know ultimate lap time, but I think Bez... His, his floor is a lot higher as a rider. He's he's less likely to make those sorts of win it or bin it sort of mistakes. Yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, he crashed today and Martin didn't. But yeah. actually, I, I, I do. I, I agree with you in a different way. I don't think he's he is. He was also last year's crash leader. So I don't think he's less of a crasher than Martin. But I do. I do see what you mean in terms of his like his recent form. It seems like the the lower ebbs are less low than for yes. Martin generally, maybe. I, I, I see what you mean. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And look, I, I'm a big fan of Johan Zarco. I think he's, again, I don't like using the term floor guy too often because I think it's I think it's used in the negative connotation a lot of the time. But he, I mean, the guy is 
an excellent podium sitter. He's a great podium level guy at his very best. He's not been able to put together a full win, but if you want title contenders, guys that, you know, have, have the proven track record of being able to contend at the very highest level. Bez is putting that together this year. And Bastianini did that last year. And that's why he beat out Martin for the factory job last year. Whenever we'd finished uh, doing the actual interview that we did with uh, Chibati and I, he, we, we just sat for a bit in their hospitality talking and he threw it back to me and asked me the question, you know, who would you hire? Which one of them would you have, Bezek or Zarko? And for where Ducati are right now, for what they need in terms of young, fast riders, as opposed to that, that season development guy, you know, for me, it's Bezeki. It makes complete sense. But at the same time, when you look at Zarko's track record, he, uh, he makes perfect sense for Honda. I think he's the, he's the only guy, I think, on the current MotoGP grid who's rode five different manufacturers' bikes. Because he, he rode a KTM briefly, he rode a Honda for three races, he rode a Yamaha very successfully, he's riding a Ducati very successfully, and his first ever sit on a MotoGP bike was a very brief test on at Suzuki in a private test in Japan. He's got all of that experience, all of that ability to compare and contrast that, um, you know, if, if Honda are genuine and serious about fixing things and rebooting their bike, that's a lot of information to input into that process. Yeah, so it's a good rider to have. I mean, Ducati, uh, KTM is clearly benefiting from bringing in Jack Miller and Jack Miller's array of sports staff, engineers. So Honda would, I think, it would would be wise to not just bring in Johan Zarco, but bring in people who Johan Zarco has been proven to work well with, which is a stumbling point for Honda sometimes. But they they should approach this really seriously. I think it's it's a good idea. Yeah, I, I think I agree with all of you, actually. I think... Zarco is doing nothing wrong whatsoever at the moment. He's ri- he's riding well, but we we know what Zarco's level is, and it's good. But it but Ducati needs a bunch of world champions, and Zarco is not going to be a MotoGP world champion. Zarco might Zarco might turn out to be better than Jorge Martin or Marco Bezzecchi overall. You might they might flop when they get the big big chances. Bastianini, I know he's been injured, but his season currently is a big question mark. But Zarco still being at Pramac, unless Ducati finds that with Zarco gone, it's missing that bit of development now. But it's all its riders are getting quite experienced now. It's got Luca Marini in there as well, who's got a really sharp brain. I don't see Zar- I don't see Ducati loses anything by letting Zarco go. It would lose something if it risked one of its rising star talents going somewhere else and proving somewhere else that they are the kind of Banyaya beta that is going to lead the next era forward. The, the other point that Chabadi made um, in the, the wider context after we were done actually interviewing is that um, if Zarco had won two races this season and wasn't still trying to get that chip off his shoulder about not being a MotoGP race winner, then this whole process would be so much smoother for him. Yeah. You know, that it, it would be so much easier if he was a MotoGP race winner for him to go through this because, you know, that is a huge thing for him. And there's no, you know, there's there's every possibility that he will go to Honda as a MotoGP race winner with, you know, like 20 bazillion races left this season or whatever it is. He has time. Um, but yeah, I, I also get that point. Yeah. Also, thinking back to, to Zarko's point that he's a lot more mature now, so could handle Honda better than KTM. Yeah. <sighs> He's going to a much worse situation, I'd argue, at Honda than he went into at, at KTM. That was a team that had the resources in place, was on the rise, and was early in its in its trajectory. This Honda Honda trajectory is like um, a Marquez high side at the moment. We will get on to that topic in a in a little bit. I do want, before we move on from this part of the rider market, 
I just want to ask about Morbidelli briefly. If it looks like he's going to end up at Ducati on whichever team, how do we expect him to actually get on? Because I love the idea of Frankie Morbidelli going to Ducati and being as brilliant as he was at Petronas Yamaha in 2020. But I'm I'm worried that that Morbidelli is gone. It was, it was exceptionally funny, not representative, but exceptionally funny when in Q1, the sacked Yamaha rider was seven seconds quicker than the one they've kept. Just, just funny. <laughs> That's just a funny thing to see. Yep. Uh, and the, generally, Frankie had a honestly a pretty good weekend from where comparisons were more or less possible. I think Fabio did probably have something extra in normal dry conditions, but Frankie was much better in the in the sketchy bits, I would argue. And also, Frankie did not rip off his entire front fairing in an insane overtaking attempt into the loop on Luca Marini, which also helps. Yeah, it's good not to do that. I I don't feel I don't feel competent enough to make any predictions about people switching bikes. It's scary now. It's I am I've been burned too many times, both in my head and publicly in what I said. I feel uh, he should be good. Uh, it's just it just depends on. I don't think we're ever going to get 2020 Franco Morbidelli because it's just it's, it's such a weird season. It was it was we're not going to have hopefully a weird season like that ever again. And beyond the weirdness of the of how the season was like, it was also the different specs at Yamaha. It was you know it was the last Yamaha season with the M1 that everybody really liked, and I don't mean the 2020 M1, but the the 2019 M1, the good M1, and that's the M1 Franco Morbidelli had. He did a lot of really good stuff with it, but you know that helps. Um, he's you know he's a good rider. He's ultimately if you're VR 36, you got to be fairly chuffed with the lineup of Luca Marini and Franco Morbidelli. I don't think any of them are going to reach the the highs of Marco Bezzecchi, but I'm I'm open to being surprised certainly. Yeah, what I was going to say on top of that is that. Frankie Morbidelli is just genuinely a very hard talent to evaluate right now because, like, it's obviously the ACL injury has has had a negative impact on him and his ability, but that also coincided at the exact same time that Yamaha started to, um, you know, climb as a manufacturer. So it's kind of really hard to say, well, how much of it is down to Frankie's poor season um, or poor seasons, I guess you could argue, in the last year and a half, maybe two years. Because also on top of that, this year, he's, I think he's genuinely improved compared to his 2022 season. I think he's ran a lot closer sure. to Fabio um, Quattararo over the course of this season compared to last year. So all of that factored in with a Yamaha factory that's clearly in, a, in I'd argue, as bad, if not an even worse situation than Honda is at the moment. Um, along, you know, which is you know, it's, it's hard. You talk amongst yourselves on that Big one at home because you, you can toss a coin on that one between those two guys in Japan right now and figuring out which one's in a worse position. But you've also got to. Fa- I'll, I'll do a tele chart of ambulances this year. That would be my my measure for which one's in the worst well, it, position. It, it, it would be the it would be a small scale accident or a large scale accident to determine the amount of ambulances required. But no, it's it's not been an ideal situation. Like I said with Frankie's injury on top of that as well, it kind of puts this really murky grey area on where Frankie is as a rider relative to the field right now. He's being compared to a former world champion in his Yamaha climate right now. He's in a, he's on a bike that might be the worst in the field certainly if at best second worst in the field and then he's going to a Ducati team that's that 
with with a bike that is like I mean, whether it's Grassini or VR forty six, it's a bike that can challenge for a championship even when it's a year old in the hands of the right rider like Bastianini or Bezecchi. So like it's such a, a vast gaping chasm of where Frankie could be like between now and the last two years and what he could be in 2024, depending on what seat he lands in that I wouldn't like, I, I'm, I'm with Val. I think all bets are off on this one. It could be anywhere from him being a, a title contender again, like he was in 2020's weird pandemic season to what he was last year, where he was arguably the worst full-timer in the sport. It's, it's an, it's an incredibly wide range. So the, the two of you are also busy sitting on the fence that I'm just going to come in with an actual opinion here and <laughs> oh, say okay. that uh, prior to the opening round of next season, we will be talking about Franco Morbidelli in the same language that we were talking about Marco Bezzecchi this year and Enea Bastianini the year before him as the guy that can absolutely upset, especially in the first half of the season on a year old bike, because I think he's still got it. Wow. I love that. Mm. I'm just, I, I think my only prediction on this front is that VR46 with Marini and Morbidelli just seems like a really pleasant place to hang out and just like a lovely, oh, yeah. lovely good, good vibes. vibes. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. Good vibes. It, it, we we um, even with the current lineup, we um, we had dinner last night in VR forty six, and uh, you know Peko came to hang out Aww. after he finished his own dinner at Ducati because it was just good fun and played foosball with uh, Luca and and Bez. Brilliant, yeah, yeah. I should um, we haven't covered every little bit of the Ducati rider market situation here because there are at least three more riders linked to Grassini at the moment. However, this podcast needs to be recorded and edited and then a night might pass and by that time there could be five more riders linked to Grassini. Uh, we'll sound yeah. we'll sound daft if it turns out by the time you listen to this, Melandri's got that ride. So uh, let's just... I, I spoke to um, Carlo, Grassini, uh, Carlo Merlini from Grassini yesterday and Saturday and that's literally exactly what he told me to. Uh, he told you Melandri's coming back? <laughs> Landry, <laughs> Arbolino, Jake Dixon, you know, yeah. maybe Loris Caparossi. Fermin Aldegar now. Fermin Aldegar, yeah. maybe Loris Caparossi comes out of retirement and, and, and rejoins his old team. I mean, the way yeah. it's going, like, again, I think all bets are off. I think it should be Arbolino, but, you know, who knows at this yeah. point? So do I. <laughs> but we shouldn't, we shouldn't go there. Matt wants us to end the segment. End the segment. <laughs> And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Uh, okay, so we we did get onto the race a lot quicker than we usually do, but we haven't really discussed the likely champion, reigning champion, Banyama today. We're going to do this very quickly. This is kind of Banyaya has something go wrong, but still looks like obvious champion corner. Val, what do you make of Banyaya's weekend? Yeah, it was. I uh, there was a brief moment because because of how good Bezeki has been recently in terms of not just the race performances, but like when on Friday the bikes are you know put down for the first time, and Marco Bezeki is always right up there and very scary in terms of race pace which okay it makes sense for a year old bike that's completely refined but you still you know what i mean there were bits during the weekend where i was like oh do we have a like a title fight and especially obviously after the sprint where something went 
yeah, it wasn't a big point swing, but something went really wrong for, for Peko Banyaya that he was really confused by, but to me just seemed to be conditions that he doesn't necessarily love. On top of, I mean, he said it was also something wrong with, with something else, but just generally, you know, that nine point swing, was it nine points, 10 points? I don't know. I, I don't no, know. Nine points in the second compared to Bez. So yeah, nine points there. Yeah. Nine points is not a lot, but seeing Bezeki being able to take out that chunk and how good he looked in the sprint, I was like, this, there might be some room to sweat a little bit, especially if, if strange conditions keep happening again. And then, obviously, of course, the next day, Bezeki crashes out of second place. Banyaya does the exact race he needs to do, surrenders the win, which is completely fine, won't lose a second of sleep over that. It was it was conditions later on to crash out of and potentially drop 20 points. He did not do that. He's now 40-something 40, 40 over Martin and 40-plus more than that over Bezeki. Could have looked at the actual numbers. <laughs> no, not, not doing that. Um, I, It looks good. And it looks good because, again... Uh, I think he's just, even when he doesn't look like he has that ultimate edge of pace, he's just really good at managing races now. Like straightforward, normal condition races. He's just very, he boxes very smart. Yeah. I don't think he was the second fastest, second fastest rider today on the, on the balance of all the things throughout all the race. It was like every time somebody like, Espargaro or Betseki or Vinales released themselves from a sort of a cork situation, they immediately came up to Banyaya. Like it took him like one or two laps and then they just sat there going, and what do I do now? How do I get past you? Because you don't really, you don't leave me many open doors. And the one door he opened, I think conditions will have played a part. He's just very good at managing races, which is why it, it doesn't look good for the title battle, even though he didn't win this weekend and non-scored in the sprint. I mean, there was a time whenever uh, Paco Bagnaia would have had a race like the final laps of today, where it was slightly sketchy conditions, easy to make a mistake. And with a rider who's very good at applying pressure from behind you, behind him in the form of, of Espigaro. And I never once thought, oh, Paco's going to crack here. I never once expected a mistake from him. I expected Alish to find a way past him and to win the race. But, you know, my, my, my thought was always going to be that by now I was going to salvage good points today because that's just the guy that he's you know, matured into now. That's the the more uh, sort of complete racer that he is. Um, he hasn't shown any weakness this year, really, apart from a few very minor blips. All of his rivals keep sabotaging themselves in the championship. I, I just can't see anyone else win this year now, even with as many races to go as we have. So speaking of champions who had bad Saturday, speaking of people sabotaging themselves, Saturday was bad for Banyaya. It was, it was rubbish for a couple of other champions. Let's do with Mar- Marquez first. Mm. It looked to to me, and I think it was Morbidelli who mentioned this as well, that this is the closest we've seen Marquez come to just giving up on a race for a while. But he basically admitted that. Yeah, he, he basically acknowledged that. Yeah, he was running what on course for maybe at best the fourteenth place, which in the sprint pays zero points, and points just clearly just don't seem to matter at all this season anyway. Like, it just doesn't seem bothered. So he basically, as he described it, he rolled out, went behind Joan Mir to to follow him for a bit and see what's up, and figure out some things. On Sunday, it did look and sound like he you know generally pushed he set himself in like an upper target of 
12th or something and attrition turned that into a lower top 10 battle which ended with him uh it's hard to describe because i've not seen a good angle yet and i, I i'm not 100 percent sure it exists but he was coming up Coming up to maggots, and uh, it sounds like Enea Bastianini just overtook him before that. And it's hard to see from the onboard, but maybe Bastianini goes to cover him off. Maybe they both just go for the same part of the track, and Bastianini checks up a lot harder than Marquez. Whatever the case happens, obviously, Marquez is, Marquez's race ends there and then, and Bastianini's ends shortly thereafter because he crashed the probably damaged bike like three quarters later. Um, sounds like a dumb mistake, but I've, I've not seen it. So it, it depends on how much of a change of direction and checkup there was for Bastianini. And in any case, wasn't a, wasn't a super encouraging race or anything. There was a, a fairly telling moment on the grid where I think uh, TNT Sports asked him, like, this should be your conditions if the rain, the rain comes. And he was like, these were my conditions without really I mean that's just that's just a telling thing to say. It's uh I think there's a real not only just a confidence nadir but also so a general attempt to put on a brave face as he did again today about the performance that I think sort of slips through. I don't genuinely believe that Mark Marquez is particularly encouraged by having run and fought for like tenth or ninth place and then crashed out and like that represents to him some sort of meaningful progress within Honda. I don't believe that. I don't believe that he believes that. I think it was. It was a bad weekend on which, okay, he was still the quickest Honda rider, but he wasn't quickest by the usual maybe half a second, which tells me that he's taking it a bit easy. And even then still, he found the situation. The situation found him to, to end up on the floor. Yeah, I mean, this weekend was clearly a, a, a write-off for Marquez. I mean, Marquez has made a career of living on what I like to call seventh gear, even though a MotoGP bike only has six. He's made a career of going over the limit, trying to find where that limit is and, and then find it and then managing, you know, just how far he can push himself. Could you could you ever imagine pre-arm break in 2019 that Mark Marquez would intentionally roll behind another rider just to see what his bike would look like in the eyes of someone else? That is terrifying. Like you said, changeable conditions is where Marquez has completely dominated MotoGP. Those low grip, those slippery conditions, he's untouchable and he's basically saying, well, this used to be great. He sounds like Phil Mickelson in a golf tournament now. It's like, well, maybe if I hit my driver right, then you know, it might work out, but they've broken him. I think they have mentally broken him and I think he's checked out of this season. This season for now, now for Marquez seems like an extended test session of him trying to figure out just how bad Honda is, where they can make gains. I think the Misano test is going to be huge for where Honda's going um, later on in the season. And I just don't think Mark Marquez, I think Mark Marquez knows that a good day will now be top 10 um, as opposed to, you know, like it was maybe even as, as recently as Le Mans where he was challenging for a podium finish before crashing with a lap and a half to go. I think that was a very optimistic outlook and the field has clearly taken another step since then. Um, and I think for Marquez, this, this year is now a write-off. And I think you could, again, we, I'm sure it's been mentioned on the show many a time already where it's, you know, that sprint was was um, harrowing to see that six of the bottom seven were Japanese bikes. And the only one that wasn't was Paul Spagaro, who had not done a race distance, even a sprint race distance so far this season. It's, I think it's a write-off for Marquez this year at this point. I think, I 
I think they were six out of six at one point. I'm fairly yeah, sure they most were six of out of six at one yeah. point before, yeah, before a, a few riders came back towards them. But yeah, it's like 30 seconds off the, the top European bikes, just bad, really bad. However, the Marquez household, the Marquez family, has a MotoGP race victory this season now. And I do believe that around five months ago on this podcast, I suggested that the the Marquez winning a race this year would be called Alex. And that's now the case. So I feel vindicated for that not particularly bold prediction. Haven't got a lot of time to discuss the sprint race winner, which is often the situation we end up in. But Val, say great things about Alex Marquez or or just pour cold water on his victory if you want. But it wouldn't be very on brand for you to do that. <laughs> I'll, I'll, pour, I'll pour cold water on your victory. I mean, it's not statistically <laughs> a race win. It's a race. He finished first in it on the MotoGP bike. Look, uh, to be fair, I think I think it should count as a like a proper win. I think it should count as a race winner. I think it was a really really good ride by a rider who deserved a, a decent break this season and and got one. And it's good that he did because obviously then on Sunday went on for a good result. His bike just stopped working at some point, which apparently was apparently unrelated to the to the Pecco Bagnai contact, as he said afterwards, which is then even even more unlucky. So contact that breaks off a piece of his wing and that's you know he sort of sh- manages to shrug that off and be on for a decent enough result and then just the bike stops working great uh happy for his happy for his sprints happy for for alex i think his season deserved that i think he's having a good one and at the other end of the scale the last person we're going to talk about today uh, we have touched on this already but i feel it deserves its own proper standalone mention has any past champion looked as just bad as Quattararo did for chunks of this weekend when he was that far off the pace and tooling around at the back as he did in the sprint and then as you said earlier Val with the way X did the main race as well but particularly the Saturday pace was just oh that was ugh, ugh, just noises I haven't even got words may he forgive me but like Jorge Lorenzo at some points in the wet I mean, okay, uh, not... yeah, but he he was okay. I should have, I should have said non-injured because a lot of Lorenzo's worst moments were when he was like held together with staples. Like the seven seconds wasn't quite real because there was also so Crashara had the big shake and he returned to the pits and they weren't quite ready. I think for whatever he was planning to do, so he didn't really get another lap in. As everybody improved in confidence, he would have been like three three something seconds off, which is still real bad. But you know, uh, and it's not really. Like, this kind of condition is not what you come to Fabio Quartararo for. He was actually proper fast on Sunday. Like, every time you looked at the timing, he seemed to make up a position or two from starting from basically nowhere uh, and clearly got massively carried away with a move at the loop that was never on in Luca Marini that took off his fancy new Yamaha Aero and shoved it under his front wheel. Um, It was just very untidy and not robust and not good and... Just not vibes are not great in terms of what you know what Quartararo's weekends are looking like and how he feels about Yamaha's developments. That sort of general thing, with the with the caveat that the new arrow that he ran in the race, which does look a bit different as far as I could tell. Although I, it is entirely possible I've looked at something else entirely and I'm completely wrong, but hopefully not. Uh, apparently he liked that one quite a bit and his race pace did suggest that he liked it quite a bit before he broke it off of Marini's Ducati. There's a there's an amazing clip, uh, you know, whatever, they, they, they replay the highlights of the race and uh, then record the winners watching it, the podium watching it uh, just before they go on the podium. And uh, they showed that clip of what he did to the bike and Alex Espigaro went, oh, look, uh, Fabio made a cafe racer. 
which really, really kind of drives home just how much he messed up the front of that bike. Um, oh. he, he looked this weekend to an extent like someone who'd given up on Saturday, who just did not want to be riding a MotoGP bike in the rain at Silverstone. And he was probably more critical of Yamaha than he's ever been this weekend, but in a kind of a resigned to his fate way rather than in any sort of anger or, you know, he was just of the opinion that it's just not working. The Japanese factories as a whole are not doing the right thing. And that, you know, come to the Mizano test, come the Mizano test in what, just over a month's time, they're kind of going to know what next year looks like already, depending on the bike that they bring them to try out for the first time. Um, yeah, he, he sounds like someone resigned to an unhappy fate right now. And I think you, you sent a message into the group chat at one point over the weekend, Val, didn't you, saying <laughs> Quattro is going to be going to be the first to leave actually before Marquez leaves Honda. And like, it's not unrealistic that, you know, that we get to four or five races in the next season and he's announcing that he's off somewhere else. Cause I don't know if he's more, yeah, I don't know if he's more unhappy, but he's more publicly cranky and has got less of a filter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I think it's, that's, it's less of a filter more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say you dropped in the group chat and we have Simon, uh, um, only yesterday that he was asked, well, Fabio, are you being embarrassed by the Japanese manufacturers? And he was responsible. But of course, yeah. <laughs> I'm saying in the most casual of, in, yeah. in the most casual, but yet damning of ways. It, it wasn't even casual. It was like, of course, like, why are you asking me that? Isn't it obvious? <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like the, he, I, I saw him in his rider debrief. He was the most surrounded rider in that debrief. And that was a man that just was just, looked resigned to just knowing like somebody asked him in the debrief like do you think you had top five pace if it wasn't for the traffic and he was like no <laughs> like, absolutely not so it was it was it's that is another like, in the in the in the, in the power rankings of who is the most resigned to their bad japanese manufacturer <laughs> we, we we are finally getting the marquez quattararo title fight <laughs> that we probably should have got to three or four years ago but haven't had yet and it's silverstone Silverstone with a Yamaha. It yeah, should be so much better point. than this, obviously. Um, I just, I have this mental image of being Yamaha PR, you know, one of the Yamaha PR uh, people they have every every weekend going with Quartararo to the sessions, putting down, you know, the tape recorder or the phone and listening to his words and mentally checking off like, okay, this I can't use in the press release. This I cannot use. This I cannot use. Please say something nice. Please say something at least a little bit positive. I can't use this either. Please. I mean, he does. He does occasionally sort of correct to a bit more sort of work, work, work. The normal thing that a MotoGP rider says when they're struggling. But he's he's a lot more open at how unhappy he is with the package, and with the technical stuff. And it's not too late, Fabio, to get yourself in the mix of that Grassini Ducati ride. By the time we put this podcast out, give him a call. Get involved. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Dre, for joining us. Uh, we will certainly have you back on other occasions, I reckon. Thank you, Val. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, listeners. Will you have me back on other occasions? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I said that in a resigned sort of way, like we're stuck together, which is kind of yeah. true. But yeah. <laughs> it's, it's said fondly. Um, Again, just before I go, big thanks to Glenn, to Glenn Freeman, of course, um, for, for inviting me down for this. He, he was a guy that reached out to me in the first place. Genuine honor to be uh to be in such esteemed company and Simon Patterson. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and Simon was also there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
we'll leave um, Simon and, and Dre to start their own Twitter fight up and down the Silverstone Corridor there at opposite ends of at the moment. Uh, thank you, listeners, for joining us. Uh, we really hope the rest of the season gives us as much actual pure racing to get our teeth into as Silverstone did. But to be honest, a little bit more, I really hope it gives us loads of really crazy rider market fallout as well, because frankly, that's the real juice this season. We'll speak to you again very soon. The Athletic.